everyone. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And this episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN and Fundrise. You'll hear about them in a little bit. Joining me on the show this week is Wes Hilliard. Thanks for joining me, Wes. Morning, Stephen. Good morning. We got some audio things going on. We're going to have to get to this when we maybe talk about the iOS 14.2 beta. But that uh, automatic device switching on AirPods, I don't know about you, but it's actually been... I don't know, sometimes more of a challenge than a help. Have you experienced difficulty in that as like switching between devices? Well, funny enough, no. Um, it's actually been pretty magical. I'll just be on my phone and then go to do something on my iPad, play a YouTube video, go back to the phone, and I, I just have an AirPod in, and it's I don't have to think about where my audio is coming from. And it's working on the iPad mini too, so it's just all three of these devices are able to just switch automatically pretty easily. And I haven't had any issues. I saw user complaints about listening to a podcast on your phone and then playing something on the iPad and just losing that podcast. Uh, I haven't really had any issues with that. But then again, I'm not trying to play multiple bits of audio at the same time either. So for me, it's been fine so far, Right. other than whatever just happened. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess I'll just make this a a segment, too, of iOS 14 and AirPods stuff. But I will say I finally tried the spatial audio on AirPods Pro. I wasn't sure what to watch, and maybe you can suggest a good example of spatial audio with Apple's content, but I actually found out if you go into the settings of whatever device, either your iPhone or iPad that's running iOS 14, you go to Bluetooth, hit the little I next to AirPods Pro, and you can actually do like a spatial audio test and it'll actually show you or have you listen to the difference of audio with and without spatial audio. And it's it's got some different kind of rhythmic type instruments. And you could tell it's like moving around in space as you move your head. So the test is pretty cool. But then I was trying to find some content where I actually actually use it because it's not super clear what you can watch that has it. And sometimes you can watch something in like Disney Plus if you want to watch a Marvel movie and you can enable spatial audio. And I don't know if Apple's kind of doing a processing into spatial audio for it's actually enabled like legitimately or if that's just apple's content so i'm not sure it was cool during the test but i can never tell if it's really using it when i'm watching something what have you found in kind of using spatial audio with your devices I think we mentioned it briefly last time I was on. Pretty much anything with Apple TV Plus content, if you see Dolby Atmos, it really just needs something with more than one channel, and that's pretty much anything recorded, but definitely works best with more modern content, it seems. An episode of C, you know, with the way that they recorded that, a lot of audio is used for directional stuff and for communication, so it's really kind of fun to listen to that or listen to the opening of that uh, with spatial audio on, kind of get an idea of what kind of acoustics you're dealing with. Well, I wanted to do some Apple Watch follow-up. We've been talking about it for the last few weeks and kind of did a review on last week's episode. Andrew, actually on appleinsider.com, has done a full written review. He's got a video up. So I'll put a link in show notes to that. You should definitely check out his review. A couple of interesting discoveries that I have found. You know, I forgot about the ECG capability of Apple Watches. I realized you actually have to kind of set that up in the health app on your iPhone. And so I did that, did an ECG. I'm still alive, apparently. That's good. I was going to see like what model back that goes to. And you can actually go all the way back to the Series 4 and do the ECG ability. And I discovered that because my wife has a Series 4. So that's just curious. If you've never done that before, you kind of actually have to set it up first. And then you have the ability to just run it on your watch directly. And I was also curious. I know you now have a Series 6 as well, Wes. What model did you get and what band did you get? 
I just got the aluminum watch space gray with a regular sport band. I didn't want to complicate my order. So just ordered the most basic version of it to make sure I got it the day of release. Right. And now what were you upgrading from? The series five. I usually upgrade the watch every year. Gotcha. So what what have you been thinking about it? What are your initial thoughts? Well, I haven't noticed too much of a change. Most of the changes were health related. So um, the blood oxygen detection. Then there's the the brighter display outside. I think that has been noticeable just because, um, again, it's just easier to read. But these kinds of things are more quality of life. You're not going to notice it right offhand. Uh, faster processing is definitely noticeable. You know, getting the apps uh, up and running, yeah. checking things, uh, doing Siri queries, uh, anything like that, pretty much you know, I'm going to see a difference anytime you do something like that. Or I did notice though, uh, like me and Andrew both had this problem when 14.2 came out on Thursday. So of course, being what the crazy people we are, we installed it immediately. <laughs> and then our watches arrived on Friday and found out that 14.2 doesn't have support for the blood oxygen sensors. So me and Andrew hmm. were not able to use that sensor until the beta two came out for that and actually updated to use that sensor. So I only just got the ability to check that. And has yours been consistent or how have you found the actual testing and numbers to be on the blood oxygen? It's about the same. I get about 97, 96% uh, blood oxygen. I have asthma. My lungs never work the way they're supposed to, but uh, as long as I'm sitting still, I should have normal uh, levels. I need to check it out during a workout or something and see how that compares, but seems to be uh, reading things fine. No, no weird numbers so far. Okay. So I have a short story. We actually had a listener write in. This is Dave from Indiana, and he was telling us kind of about his solo loop return at an Apple store situation. He also got a titanium Apple watch. That's the one I have. And he was trying to swap out different size bands because again, with the solo loop, the sizing has been interesting to say the least, trying to find the right size and that actually fits well. So I originally ordered mine with a braided solo loop and it was a size too big. And so I've wanted to exchange it, but I've heard about the horror stories of trying to exchange and you have to return the whole watch. And I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to work. So I did head down to my local Apple store, but I brought the braided solo loop that had came with my Apple Watch Series 6, and I went to see, can I exchange it? And so I, I worked with the the first lady there. Because of the particular Apple store that I was at, they don't sell the titanium model in store. She was not sure if she could actually do that whole return the Apple Watch in the system and give me a different band right there in the store because they didn't have like a return in store option. So she was going to point me to calling Apple support and doing the return process kind of online and shipping it. But then she called over like the big guns. You know, sometimes when you're in the Apple store, they'll say like, all right, well, let me get so-and-so because he's kind of like the the person that knows whatever it is that's going on. And so this, this other guy came over and it was very quiet for a while. No one said anything. And he, he was tapping on an iPad for maybe 10 minutes. And eventually he was able to figure it out. And he was able to do this transaction where it did on paper return my entire Apple Watch and the braided loop band. And then they didn't have any braided loops in my size in the store but they did have regular solo loops. And so I asked, I thought this was going to be way out of the question, but could I get two regular solo loops, the elastic rubbery kind instead of the braided? Because typically the braided, the braided costs a hundred dollars. The regular solo loops cost 50. And I was like, well, can I exchange it for two since that's the price difference and you guys don't have any braided ones here in the store? And believe it or not, he actually worked it out for me 
where I was able to return the braided loop that had come with my Apple Watch Series 6. And I was actually able to get two rubbery solo loops. And I think the difference was like $10 or $12. And so I paid 12 bucks and I got two rubber solo loops for the one braided loop and he was able to figure it out. So if you have a solo loop that does not fit or is not the size that you want that you got with your Series 6, it is possible. You just have to kind of find the right person and kind of wait for a while, be patient. And they were able to work it out. And so I was able to swap mine out, got ones that fit. They actually have a new sizing tool they use in the store. It's the same kind of paper thing, but I actually got a different size on that in-store measuring tool than I did on my printout one. And that kind of maybe makes sense. I think they've been adjusting that size tool over the past several weeks. I think some people cited issues with the printer too, like they were printing the page was getting adjusted. So like different printers would print out different sizes of the band test. Right. So it was interesting. I just figured, let me use theirs too. And the one at home, I had gotten a nine. And that's one I had ordered with my watch and it was too big. And so now in store, I use theirs and I was actually an eight. And that's the size I got in the rubbery solo loops and another braided one. And those fit fine. So anyway, it is possible you just kind of have to be patient, find the right person, but do it. If, he, if someone else has a story like that, you know, be curious to hear it if it's possible or if they weren't able to do it. Did I imagine this? I think Apple changed it now so the bands and the watches have their own SKUs and uh, you can actually return the band separately now. That's only with new orders. The original orders, it was all one SKU and that was the problem. Right. I think they have done that now. So if you order one today, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. But if you're one of the pre-orders like day of or that first week, you know, they might have to do that whole exchange. So I got an email receipt where it showed me returning the whole watch and then buying it again with a different band. But it worked. I got my band. So it's possible, apparently. Uh, And the last bit of Apple Watch follow-up I just wanted to mention, William had a great article on Apple Insider talking about using Siri shortcuts to change your Apple Watch face at certain times of the day. And, you know, there's a great app from underscore David Smith called Watchsmith, and you can kind of change the complications throughout the day, which is that really cool. And his iOS 14 app, Widget Smith, has been like number one in the app store for like a week and a half. There's actually a really interesting episode on Under the Radar with Marco Arment and underscore David Smith. And he was talking about what it feels like and what it means to be number one in the app store and just have crazy downloads, uh, just the support requests and all that kind of stuff. So that was interesting. Just if you want to listen to that show, it was really interesting. But I actually set up a couple of series shortcuts that automatically change the watch face throughout the day. And it works great. As long as you have the toggle where it doesn't say ask to run shortcuts. If you just turn that off, the ask to run feature, it'll just change your watch face automatically at whatever time of day that uh, you set it up. Do you do any of that, West? Kind of the series shortcut stuff? I've played around with the watch face switching. There's a lot of parameters you can go with. I mean, it is within the shortcuts automation app, so it can literally be uh, set it up. So start a work, start a running workout, and it'll change your watch face to your workout watch face, stuff right. like that. Like you can go in really depth, uh, like a, or set bedtime, right? So if you have your bedtime alarm set up in your um, clock app, uh, you can make it so when bedtime is set, it switches to your app that shows all your sleeping stats and all of that. So right. a lot of little tweaks and things you can do there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So there's a link shown us to that as well. Let us know if you have any other questions or thoughts on the Apple Watch as we've kind of, they're more out in the wild now and people are getting them. So let us know. 
I will note, um, as far as the Series 6 goes before we close that, the fast charging makes a huge difference. So the battery life didn't really change. As far as the daily use of the Series 6, the most noticeable aspect so far is, you know, I'm one of those people who has a watch on about 23 hours a day. Hmm. Uh, That one hour I put it on the charger, you know, take a shower or whatever, it used to only go from maybe 40% to 80%. I'd have to wait around, make sure that it got to 100 before I put it back on. But now, without a doubt, if I put it on there a greater than you know 20%, it gets to 100 pretty quickly, and I don't have to even think about it anymore. So that's definitely a noticeable aspect of the upgrade. Yeah, I have noticed it charge fast. Now, do I have to have a different block than the 5-watt one for it to charge fast? I'm not entirely sure. I know like the basic Apple Watch needs at least 2.5 watts for charging. I think there's like a 7.5 watt fast charge, maybe. Uh, I personally wouldn't use the 5 watt block for anything, but I don't actually use, now that I think of it, I don't actually use any of the like charging blocks to cable uh, things. Anywhere I charge my Apple Watch, it's on a one of those little hub things, you know, the oh. charge your phone, charge your AirPods, charge your watch. So, and Do you know how many watts that's giving your watch? No idea. I just know there's an Apple Watch thingy there and I throw my watch on it. I'd have to check. I I have the Seitechi uh, Trio, I believe it's called. And then I have the Nomad, whatever it is with the built-in Apple Watch charger. I already forgot what it's called. Base Station. That's it. Base Station Pro with the Apple Watch charger. Which one do you use most often? Well, the one on my bedside is the base is the uh, Nomad base station, and the one in my office is the Seitechi Trio. But yeah, the one by the bed I use the most. Okay, interesting. Well, just a quick note about upcoming iPad Pro rumors. This was an article talking about how Mini LED for the iPad Pro might be coming in early 2021. Again, we know that the A14 chip is out there and the new iPad Air. There's also rumors of marketing materials of the new iPad Air going into Apple stores now. So the availability should be coming soon. Apple did say October. So if you're interested in that new iPad Air, that will be available soon, most likely. But again, this mini LED might be coming early 2021 to the iPad Pro. That would kind of line up with the annual refresh cycle of the iPad Pro. But Wes, I know you have the 2020 model iPad Pro. So if this mini LED version comes out in a few months, are you going to jump on that one? Well, I mean, that's at least a 12-month switch. We're, we're talking about March or so of next year, so right. uh, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. This is my production machine. My iPad Pro is what I work from, so if I have to throw a bit of money at it you know, once a year to get the newest thing, it's for work. I'm all for it. I mean, if I do the math, I already forgot how much I sold it for, but I sold my last model of iPad Pro, which was what the 2018 model mm-hmm. bought this one. And I think it was only about a $400 out of pocket expense to do that. So that's a good deal. Yeah. Doing that again, give or take a little bit kind of worth it for me. So I think one of our other co-hosts is interested in a new iPad Pro. You might uh, take it off your hands. Just saying William over there across the pond is, is waiting for one of us to send him one of our iPad Pros. So I don't know if he's actually willing to buy it or not. He just wants us to send it to him. So we'll see. <laughs> just show up on his doorstep. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the ideal. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. So we all know how a VPN protects our privacy and security online. I use ExpressVPN all the time, but it's also taken my TV watching game to the next level because using a VPN, you can actually unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Recently, I used ExpressVPN to watch Doctor Who on the UK Netflix. You can also access Star Trek Discovery on UK Netflix or Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Canada Netflix. Using ExpressVPN, you can unlock tons of shows all over the world. 
See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So think about all the Netflix libraries that you can access. If you love anime, you can use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, whether that's Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. And listen, there's lots of VPNs out there, but I use ExpressVPN to watch shows and movies because it's ridiculously fast. There's no buffering, no lag. You can stream HD video with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, your iPhone, iPad, your Mac, even smart TVs and media consoles. So you can watch what you want on your devices or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash appleinsider, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself as you browse the internet at expressvpn.com slash appleinsider. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. So iOS 14.2, the public beta came out. While there's not a ton of changes, there's some tweaks to the control center design as well as some HomeKit icon changes. But the biggest change of all that probably most people are excited about is new emojis coming in iOS 14.2. And there's a hilarious tweet that you tweeted at Andrew just all the latest emojis uh, so he could have quick reference to it, which, yeah, kudos to you <laughs> finding all those. I actually missed one. I missed the new oh. quarter. Yeah, the, there's a quarter emoji and uh, it says, oh gosh, I already forgot. I think it's for the crazy ones. It's one of those Apple quotes on the back of the quarter. Yeah, it's always funny the attention to detail Apple puts into these things. Yeah, I'm also curious the animals that they choose to put in there. I mean, we have a bison now in iOS 14.2. And is that a beaver? There's a beaver, a mammoth, yeah. a polar bear, right. a dodo. That's hilarious. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, adding both extinct and modern animals too. That's great. Oh yeah, yeah, look at that dodo bird. I want to find a way to use the disguise face, the guy with the glasses. Um, right. Gosh, what it, I would never, never mind. I was going to try and reference the character from those uh, old black and white cartoons who wears that, but I cannot think of his name. Groucho Marx? Groucho. That's a Groucho face. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then there's the, <laughs> uh, I think the m most popular I'll go ahead and predict it now. The smiling and crying face, I think, is going to yeah. be pretty popular. Yeah, probably. I actually like that uh, kind of Italian hand thing, I guess. I don't know <laughs> the correct term for it. Oh, that's the big joke so far, yeah. I mean, what is that supposed to be? What is it like? Is there an official name for it? You have to go to Emojipedia to find it. I already forgot what it is. Yeah. yeah. Emojipedia. Well, I'll have to look it up. But yeah, that, that's kind of hilarious. All right. Well, another update that I wanted to cover is some of the new Siri queries. I say that 10 times fast. But the Siri queries that you can now do in iOS 14, it does uh, have some new features. Like you can send an audio message using Siri and do things like that. But I was actually curious just to talk about Siri in general. I'll put a link to the article and show notes this is from Malcolm talking about the new queries that are available. But in general, I don't know, Wes, how often do you find you use Siri and what are kind of the most common tasks that you use it for? Well, I use Siri pretty much every day, multiple times a day, mostly for HomeKit, controlling my lights, changing the temperature. Uh, I found a neat trick actually uh, recently. I used to say, set the thermostat to 72 degrees and that's just a mouthful. You can actually just tell Siri 
it's too cold in here or it's too warm in here, stuff like that. And it'll just right. adjust the thermostat for you. Yeah, stuff like that, I'm, I find I'm using pretty often. I don't really ask questions. I don't really find myself like if I'm usually, you know, within inches of a phone or something, I can just search it. Most of the time it's HomeKit. Uh, every now and then I'll trigger a shortcut or check the weather, but nothing too crazy. I don't use it too often. I do use my HomePods to kind of activate some HomeKit scenes and do things like that. I don't typically do like personal requests, but I will say I actually had an optometrist appointment the other day, just a normal like annual eye check, and I had my pupils dilated. And I forgot how difficult it was to see at arm length, like phone screens, once you have your pupils dilated like that. And I just could not read anything on the screen. And so I remembered you can ask Siri to read your text messages. And my wife was texting me at the time and I was trying to tell her like, I'm out of the appointment. And so I actually did use Siri to read my latest texts and it would read them and I would be able to reply and it read my reply back. So I know at least had some semblance of what I was trying to say. And yeah, that worked pretty well. And so when I did that, I was like, oh, maybe I would do this more often. I don't know. Maybe if I was using AirPods more often, when I, if I was walking around or whatever, but I haven't found a ton of reasons to do it. But, but that one use case, I was like, you know what, this is eh, actually pretty useful. So that was interesting. I do like using it to just music aspects. Apple's done, I think, uh, the best job out of all the assistants so far with just music things. You can ask, you know, who's playing, find information about it, or uh, mm -hmm. tap into your music library in Apple Music and tell it to play whatever you want, or just get a radio station playing. So that kind of stuff's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I find myself using Siri mostly, like I said, off the HomePods. You mentioned the AirPods. It's kind of fun seeing seeing them race each other you'll just say it out loud with the airpod in and you'll see everything in the room light up but still the yep. the airpods win <laughs> in the car i've noticed that i i do enjoy using siri because that's great for you know not dying uh messaging <laughs> getting directions stuff like that works pretty well so i haven't really ran into any problems with siri not like yesteryear uh just usually right ask a thing and have it happen and it usually works 99 percent of the time i have found that you know you were put in the notes here you know about other assistants i have had different pixels in the past and tried to use google assistant i mean you can use google assistant on your iphone now if you just download the google app it doesn't have the same access to your phone as google assistant would on an android phone so it's a little limited but when you're asking like general knowledge questions or sometimes even measurement questions, I do find that Google Assistant can be somewhat more helpful in those areas. A lot of times when you ask it a general knowledge question, Siri will at least give you just kind of the web search results, which cannot, it's not always useful, especially if you're trying not to look at the phone at the moment, you're just kind of wanting an answer. So that's kind of hit and miss. And then when it, measurements in the rare cases that I'm actually cooking something and I'm actually using like tablespoons and teaspoons, I will ask Siri, you know, how many teaspoons in a cup or something or how many tablespoons in a cup to kind of get a different idea. And it'll do okay with that. But I do think that Google and Alexa have a little bit of a leg up in some of those requests sometimes. What's been your experience? Whenever I ask for measurements, I, I usually get it and it's done. Timers are are usually weird because now you can name timers and have that stuff happen uh, pretty easily, which still isn't a feature on the iPhone, by the way, which is weird. Right. Yeah. Overall, not not too bad. Um, I have a personal preference here. I 
generally don't want to search factual information, stuff like that. I've, I've noticed if you ask Google or Alexa for that kind of stuff, they can talk for an hour and a half if you let them. They'll just yep. read the entire Wikipedia page to you. <laughs> I kind of prefer the shorthandedness of Siri uh, to a point. I'm not here to have a full-on conversation with whatever assistance in the room. It's usually just quick in and out, and uh, maybe it's by design or by fault of Siri not having as much information, but I prefer the shorthanded experience that Siri provides. Yeah. All right, well, we should probably mention the Google event that happened this past week. It was long rumored about the Pixel 5 and the Pixel 4a 5G that's coming out, which, man, it's different devices. They also announced a new Chromecast and a new speaker. So real quick, just to run down the list of what was announced, the Google Pixel 5 is going to start at $700. It is available for pre-order now. And the Pixel 5 also has 5G capability. And it also has the punch hole front camera. And so it's almost like a full screen on the front. It does have the uh, 16 megapixel ultra wide lens. So it dropped the telephoto lens and it now has the ultra wide lens on the Pixel 5. And then the Pixel 4a 5G, similar to the 4a that was just recently announced, it's a little more powerful. Again, the notable thing is it has 5G connectivity there. And the Pixel 4a 5G will retail for 500 bucks. So $200 difference between the Pixel 5 and the Pixel 4a 5G. And then I think the regular 4a non-5G is 350 bucks. So a $150 jump from the regular 4A to the 4A 5G, $200 jump from the 4A 5G to the 5. Man, those uh, naming conventions are tough. But anyway, did you have any thoughts on these Google Pixels? I know we're an Apple show, but sh- surely there's some listener out there that is excited about a new Pixel, but... It's just a strange product line. I mean, the, yeah. the, the way the series works every year is you come out with the main number, the 4, the 5, and then the next year you get a cheaper version with the A suffix with a little bit of a change. Google changes its mind about design aspects, different sensors, different everything every year. So there's no consistency between the product line. If you look at the 4 and the 4A even, just the changes in the cameras and certain sensors, it's uh, they're completely different phones. It's not like it's a cheaper version of it, or, you know, like the iPhone SE to the iPhone 8. It's the similarities just aren't there. Google's very experimental with their hardware. I mean, this is obviously still just yeah. a product line for, you know, 50 people. <laughs> Might be a few more than 50, but yeah, I get your point. Okay, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, compared to the rest of the Android marketplace, you, yeah, you look at, sure. you know, that price point, $700 seems to be the go-to price. That's where everyone wants to land. The iPhone 11 has, and the iPhone XR before it, has been huge in that price range. I think it's been the number one selling phone on the market just by individual model right. for the past few years, that price point. So Google wanting to tackle that price point obviously is fair, but is it being competitive? It, their camera spec got a little bump. It's 12.2 megapixels versus iPhone's 12 megapixels. Uh, you got a little bit of those Google smarts in there, but still no telling who this phone is really for. Um, it's the iPhone for people who hate iOS, I guess. Uh, (laughs) But outside of that, Google obviously designs these phones to be an example of this is what pure Google Android looks like. Please use this as your template for whatever you're building to the other Android manufacturers. I will say that there is no headphone jack on the Pixel 5 anymore. So I think it is a very small breed of phone that still has that. I think the 4A non-5G still has it. Right. I think that was a notable difference as they dropped the headphone jack too. So 
there isn't really a flagship phone on the market now with a headphone jack. Now, Google also announced a couple other products, a new Chromecast, which is now available for $50, and it's Chromecast with Google TV. Yes, the branding is very confusing. (laughs) So is Google TV the service? So I wrote the entire article thinking the thing was called the Google TV, and then I reread something and was like, oh no. So I had to go back and change it all to Chromecast with Google TV. Mm. This is the Apple TV conundrum where there's seven different things named Apple TV. Same, Same situation here. Google TV is Apple TV app. It's the same thing. That's all it is. We're not talking about the hardware. The hardware is still a Chromecast. It's a dongle that plugs into your TV and gives you stuff. Uh, the Google TV is an app, which is actually slated to replace Android TV. So Android TV is now dead. Google's famous for killing things. Right. So they've killed Android TV. That whole thing is gone. And over the next four years, they're going to replace existing Android TV with updates to Google TV. So that timeline sounds insane, but I guess people (laughs) keep their TVs for a long time, so it's fine. But yeah, Google TV is interesting uh, to say the least because it's very Apple TV app-like. Basically, it's acting as a hub for all of your subscriptions, all of your purchase content through Google. Uh, Google Play is completely dead. So this replaces Google Play Store. There's um, everything you purchase on that gets migrated to Google TV. The one difference, the major difference here is they have all of the major streaming services, including Netflix, built into the Google TV app. So Apple does not have that ability. They can't access Netflix's content for your up next, and they can't recommend things based on what you watch on Netflix, which Google can. So now this model does not require you to use your phone to cast thing. Is that kind of a big difference? Yes. Now this is more of a set-top box type thing, whereas before it was this dumb little dongle that basically your phone was the controller and it played a picture from your phone to the TV. Now this is more of a fully integrated experience, complete with Chromecast voice remote, (laughs) which is very similar to the Siri remote, has about the same number of buttons. I think instead of a touchpad, they didn't make it clear that none of their material showed anyone actually using the remote, Hmm. but the top is either touch sensitive or it's actually clicky buttons, but the top is the navigation thing. And then there's a voice control. So you can speak directly into the remote and do just like with Siri and say, give me scary movies or show me (laughs) movies with Steve Buscemi or something. But um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting product, but what is most notable here is that it plays 4K content. It has all of the functionality of Apple TV's app. I'm sure there's an Android app store of some kind, so, but it's limited because of its processing power. But it is only $50 for the whole thing. Right. And that is killer because the Siri remote by itself is $65. Right. So It is very interesting. So I've had the Chromecast in the past. I've had the last two models, I believe. And it was not a compelling experience. It was actually not a good experience at all. Like I actually found the casting was not consistent and things would buffer for a long time. And so I never really had much interest in the old Chromecast devices. Now that it's a standalone device, because one of the things I use the old ones for is whenever we would travel, like if we were going on vacation to a hotel room, I usually didn't want to unpack the whole Apple TV and disconnect it from whatever TV was in the house. And so I actually had a little Chromecast and just brought the Chromecast with us. And it would work 65% of the time. So it was fine, you know, for just doing vacation entertainment watching. 
But now that it's a whole device within itself and you don't have to cast to it, that's pretty compelling. The remote's also interesting too, because I'm looking at it now. There's actually a dedicated YouTube and Netflix button. So this partnership is pretty tight for them to have a dedicated Netflix button. I think it has to be. Yeah. I, th- I think in order for Netflix to even think about doing this, they would have to, like Google has to be giving them quite a bit. There's, there's probably an advertising uh, revenue deal built in there too it's things that apple would never do like there's not going to be a netflix button on the siri remote no and it's all the remote actually looks a little more ergonomic than the siri remote this one has like kind of a rounded back yeah maybe won't be as easy to lose and you won't pick it up upside down right exactly and i will say i think it actually has like a couple more useful buttons because there's a volume button or rocker on the side so you can adjust volume it seems there there's a dedicated Google Assistant button, then you got the back, home, mute, YouTube, Netflix, and then a power button. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, this this does seem like a compelling device. You can go ahead and buy it now. I don't think you have to wait. No, uh, people in the United States can order it now. It'll deliver this week. My question is, is you know, what are you getting for that fifty dollars experience? It, uh, it's it mentioned a Snapdragon chip. I don't have the you know Snapdragon line memorized. I don't know the processing power. I'm sure it's capable enough. I mean, obviously, it's streaming and encoding 4K video. They're they're claiming Stadia support in 2021 or later. We'll see. Who knows? But um, just very interesting <laughs> that this thing is coming out. And what is Apple's uh, Apple TV line one? 140, 160, yeah, right, or 180, something like that, uh, for their setup. And while it's more expensive, it's also, I mean, I I don't know the specs of the Snapdragon processor, but I can go ahead and tell you the, um, I think A12 processor and the current Apple TVs or A10 actually. Wow, it's probably really old, but whatever it is, I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be better than the Snapdragon. Just generally speaking, how these processing things go, but um. What are people really doing with these things? They just want to watch TV. So right. if that streaming experience is good, if there's no noticeable lag, if the Wi-Fi is fast enough and streaming speeds are good, uh, there's no reason not to get this unless you just want that Apple experience with AirPlay and HomeKit and whatnot. This episode is brought to you by Fundrise. You've probably heard for years that it's important to have a diversified investment portfolio. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, you'll typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why isn't it one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify? Well, that's simple. It hasn't been available to investors like you and me until now, thanks to Fundrise. They make it super easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here's how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high-quality, high-potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise has you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than $1 billion in assets for 130,000-plus investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged 8.7 to 12.4% annual returns, and investors have earned more than $79 million in dividends alone. Incredible. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. 
And let me encourage you, visit their website, fundrise.com slash Apple Insider, because their website is beautiful. Everything is incredibly user-friendly. You can tell they care about every detail of the investing process. From sign-up to managing your assets, Fundrise takes great care in making sure your investments are worthwhile. So start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com slash Apple Insider to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash Apple Insider to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Fundrise for sponsoring this episode. Segway, uh, Apple TV is going everywhere, right? So it's already on some Android TVs. You know, it's in Samsung's store. It's in Roku. It's in, I think, Amazon's uh, TV platform, too. It's in a lot of places uh, already, and there's rumors of it going to the Xbox and PlayStation next. Right. So I don't see why Apple wouldn't have an Apple TV app with Apple TV Plus on Google TV. And if that's there, I mean, what are you missing? You're missing HomeKit, HomeKit Secure Video, uh, Siri, the, and you know, I mean, obviously the privacy and security aspects won't be there. This is a Google product, but outside of that, most people don't care. They're, you know, they're not looking at privacy security. They're not look, and a lot of people don't even use HomeKit, or if they have home devices, they're using Assistant or Alexa anyway. So right. I want to see Apple compete with this product. Like I'm not saying they need to release a $50 Apple TV, but they either need to show why their product is almost three times the price or they need to reduce the price of their product because this thing's kind of crazy. Yeah, I agree. And you know, there was, it's been a while since we've had a refreshed Apple TV, maybe in this October event, whenever the iPhone 12 is announced, hopefully we'll see a refreshed model. But the more you talk, it is compelling. And I actually looked, and I'll include the link to show notes. I found the support article for Apple TV content. I didn't realize you can actually watch Apple TV Plus just in a web browser on a PC or Android device. I, I don't know why, I just, I had no idea. So you can watch Apple TV Plus in a normal web browser and they do actually already have an app for Fire TV, Amazon Fire TV. You can download the Apple TV app and watch the content there. So you might be right. They might just release an app on the Google TV as well. I mean, if Disney Plus is already there. I, I would say that the uh, pie chart of people watching Apple TV in a web browser is about the same size as the uh, people buying a Google Pixel in 2020. But sure. the thing here is, is I, Apple's apparently had an Apple TV 6, quote unquote, product in the lineup for months now, just holding on to it. According to John Prosser, that thing was ready to release as early as May. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious as to what that what it could be. I mean, why are they holding on to it other than maybe a processor? But I'm pretty sure it's going to use the A13. So what are they waiting for? What are they going to do with it? Are they watching the market for this? Um, Apple doesn't usually let the market dictate much of what they're doing, right? but still a little strange that we're kind of sitting on this. Like the iPad Air event, this would have been a perfect time to drop something like that on the market. I'm almost wondering, I don't know if Apple would do this, but if they actually released two devices, get to the $50 to $75 range for a streaming stick. Maybe you don't get the Siri remote or that kind of remote. Maybe you just get like a hardware button type remote without the touch surface and voice stuff built in. Maybe, maybe not. And maybe you could use your phone for it, but get to that 50 to $75 range and then release the more expensive Apple TV set top box. You know, you get the 4K HDR, all that. And I don't know if they would do this. I mean, you can get Apple arcade games on Apple TV, but you know, they have recently said they're going to allow some of the video game streaming services into the app store. And they're working on that. I wonder if maybe they're investigating the possibility of getting those 
to Apple TV. So you can actually use maybe Xbox, you know, game streaming or whatever. I don't know about Stadia, but some of these services on the Apple TV. Do you think that's possible? Well, as it exists now, it's still in such a strange place. I mean, Apple TV gaming shot itself in the foot with that first release, demanding that everyone program for that uh, Siri remote. You know, it's like, oh, it's fine. The touchpad can be a whole joystick by itself. And no one wanted to do that. The Apple TV is more than capable of running a lot of games that are on the Android TV marketplace that Apple just can't touch. Like Grand Theft Auto um, from the PS2 era, those games all work fine on Android TV and would be amazing on Apple TV. But for whatever reason, Apple hasn't given a compelling reason for Rockstar to move their games. Same thing for Square Enix or anyone else. And now we're looking at Google do this streaming service where processing power is pretty much negligible. You don't need anything other than a Wi-Fi connection. Apple coming out here through the gates saying, here's this super powerful 813 plugged into power constant. You know, there's no need to worry about battery drain. It's unlocked, can play games at full processing power with metal and game developers are like, yeah, but streaming and playstation 5 like why do we care right it feels like apple tv's concepts you know a few years behind the gate here i will say i'm an isolated case but my kids really love sneaky sasquatch on the apple tv for some reason (laughs) they keep going back to it (laughs) so there are something to be said about games on the apple tv but anyway oh yeah I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, the Apple TV is still a compelling buy. Like, I, I'm not going to go out here and buy a Chromecast. There's still plenty of reasons for me to own one. I just think that Apple needs to give developers a reason to keep developing for it. Because if there's no apps, there's no reason to have that thing. And this next generation Apple TV might be the last one if they can't convince people to actually develop apps for it. Well, the last device that was announced at Google's event was their new speaker. This is to compete with Apple's HomePod. They're calling this the Nest Audio Speaker. And it's available for $100, which is $2 to $250 cheaper than a HomePod, depending on what sale you might be able to find on a HomePod. It's interesting. It looks a lot like a HomePod, actually. It's a, it's a little thinner, I guess you could say. And it comes in a lot of different colors, which is interesting. It comes in the same colors as the iPad Air 4. Yeah, that's right. I saw that tweet going around. You can get it in the same color as the iPad Air 4. So you get a, you know white, black, or they're calling it charcoal, sage green, sand, which is like a pinkish color, and then sky, which is like a light blue. But it's an attractive looking speaker. It looks nice. I just, I have a bunch of HomePods already, so it's not tempting for me. But it's definitely an interesting device, and that price point, I think, is much more compelling than a $300 HomePod, which, you know, with the rumors, maybe we'll see a HomePod mini in a cheaper category, but... Yeah, I mean, if you look at its design, it's basically the Google, gosh, what is it called? The Ma- the Max version the of Home the Max. Google speaker. Yeah, the Google, yeah, Home, the Max. Google Home Max. It's that with the back cut off is what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's going to have less space, obviously. It's meant to be, you know, the cheaper entry point into that market. It's competitive with Amazon products. It's obvious. I mean, Apple only has the one speaker, so anything speaker related is going to have, it, that's what they're competing with is the HomePod right now. But the demonstration they gave and uh, the technology they described, it is almost identical in use case to the to the HomePod. So I just wonder, you know, why is it $99 is, is, you know, where did they sacrifice? Is it the sound quality? Is it the build materials? Uh, what are we looking at here? Because, or, or the other question is, is why is the HomePod $300? You know, right. I mean, obviously Apple wants their 40% margins, but something's got to give here. I mean, we know Apple charges a price for a product and rarely, if ever reduces the price, they usually kill the device before changing the price. Uh, so that, three-year-old HomePod, I believe it's three years old, 
hasn't changed right. and they're charging the same price for it, but maybe the technology's caught up that it, it does cost a hundred dollars to make and they can charge that much money for it. Uh, there is also the argument too of Google subsidizing a little bit of that price with their ad industry, but it's right. a whole nother issue. Yeah, which is interesting. I'm looking at their the Nest audio page right now on Google's website, and they do say privacy is built in. And there's actually a toggle switch on the back of the Nest audio device where you can physically turn off the microphones. So that's an interesting feature. So to hopefully help you give peace of mind that it's not listening to you. All right. And you can also say delete what I just said to the speaker if you wanted to delete the history of your thing, which again, you're still trusting the device to delete the thing. I don't know how you'll know it's actually deleted, but I guess it's something that you could tell it. Well, I don't want to go on a ho- off on a whole tangent here, but I don't think the issue because that, that's it's like a placebo i don't think the issue is is that it's listening obviously it's listening it's a listening device you bought a speaker to talk to i mean right. it's, you, it has to listen to you ask to process your request whether it's on on device or in the server that's not the issue here it's uh more so and in the, in that, that switch on the back doesn't turn this off it's more so the fact that whatever you say is going to be attached to your account so if you're asking about specific things it can be used later to advertise to you and now if I, i'm sure maybe somewhere google's promised that whatever you say to these google devices isn't being used for advertising and maybe that's true but google's track record here is against it so i mean we we can say that like siri yeah had that whole issue with people you know grading uh responses but we cannot. We can definitely say though that Apple has never used anything from the HomePod or from Siri to advertise to us. So, right. It's just uh, the interesting difference here. All right. Well, real quick, I wanted to cover two last bits of reviews slash thoughts, but the Keychron K2, I saw that you actually had a review on appleinsider.com for this new version. This is version two of the K2. I actually have the original Keychron K2. It's my daily keyboard that I use. Yeah, I did support the Keychron K3, the ultra slim one on Kickstarter. So I'll be waiting for that. I didn't want to upgrade just yet, but I'm curious your thoughts on the second version of the K2. Do you like it better? I mean, like I mentioned in the review, it's identical in most ways that you would use a keyboard. The key switches didn't change. The keys didn't change. The mechanical actuation is identical. Um, What did change though is the technology uh, built into it and a little bit of the case uh, build. So there's a steeper angle right now. If you take your K2 version one and set it on a desk, it's flat. Um, and then you raise the feet to get a bit of an angle to it. Well, now the casing has a built-in 90-degree angle, so when you set it on the table, it's already sloped, uh, which helps because this is a very tall keyboard, and um, you probably need a wrist rest uh, if you're not using one. With the new one, you also get two feet uh, positions, so like you can fold out smaller ones or a bigger one for a a bigger angle. So there's just Hmm. more versatility in where and how you can use this keyboard. I've been testing this one on my, uh, I call it a standing desk. It's actually a shelf with an, with a Mac mini sitting on it, but Hmm. I've been using this in my living room, um, standing up, uh, with the feet out and everything. And it's actually the perfect angle for standing and typing on it. It feels pretty good. The Bluetooth got upgraded. I think they went from version three uh, to 5.1, which is a big step. Yeah. Uh, You know, whenever the Bluetooth numbers go up, you can pretty much, yeah, it's always the same specs that change, uh, reduce power consumption, better connectivity, less likely to drop a connection, stuff like that. And uh, I, I noticed that there's there's really no lag or anything. It's it's definitely a stronger connection. And the switching feature uh, where you can use the function key to change what you're connected to up to three devices, that switches much faster, um, okay. almost instantly. Yeah, so. Is it quicker like waking up from sleep and connecting to the device? 
I didn't really notice a change in that. You still kind of, you know, got to slap it around a little bit, wake it up and uh, right. get it going. But yeah, nothing nothing really crazy there. Well, very cool. We'll put a link in show notes to that and you can see Wes's review. And the last thing I wanted to touch on, you know, I'm always looking for, is there good original content on Apple TV Plus, the service? You know, I've watched For All Mankind and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the Greyhound movie. We actually, the two of us actually talked about that a couple months ago. But the new show that just came out on Apple TV Plus is Tehran. And it's kind of a thriller type, uh, takes place in Iran, obviously, Tehran. And, you know, if you were a fan of maybe the old school, like 24 style uh, shows, or maybe even Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime, it kind of has that feel. It's very much that, you know, espionage type thing. Uh, It's interesting because a lot of it is actually in Hebrew. That's the audio language. There's a few bits of English here, but it's in Hebrew with English subtitles. And that's kind of cool. I watched all the episodes that are available now. It's pretty interesting. Uh, If you like that kind of show, that's definitely might be for you. There's also two other shows that I wanted to recommend that are kind of different genres. There's an Apple TV Plus original show called Trying. It's kind of a comedy drama, like 20-something minute episodes about a couple trying to adopt a kid. And it takes place in the England. It actually takes place in London. So, you know, it's a pretty fun show humorous you know if you're looking for kind of one of those episodic type quick humorous shows that's pretty fun you can check that out and also there's a new documentary style tv show on apple tv plus with ewan mcgregor and this is actually ewan and one of his friends they've apparently done two long extended motorcycle trips around the world and now they're doing their third motorcycle trip and this docu-series is about their journey they're doing it on electric motorcycles which is interesting so there's you know all these issues with finding charging places and going long distances so that's interesting and they also have like trucks from a company called Rivian which I had never heard of but they're making electric vehicles and so that's part of the show but if you like that kind of docu-series travel type show it's pretty interesting if you like Ewan McGregor you'll probably love this show too but that's called The Long Way Up on Apple TV Plus. Yeah, if anybody's seen any of those and you enjoy them or you check them out and like them, tweet at me. I'd be curious to see your thoughts. Have you checked out any of those or still watching any Apple TV Plus content? Um, I haven't watched anything recently. I did watch Trying when it came out and uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. It's it's pretty uh, heartfelt, yeah. fun kind of story. Most of the content I'm watching right now is uh, Amazon Prime or HBO or whatever. Uh, just waiting on whatever next comedy thing or drama series from Apple TV Plus. Nothing in the weeds. I mean, this coronavirus thing's preventing anything from being filmed. So I guess right. expect more animated stuff, but, uh, that's true. Yeah. Long, long way up is, um, definitely just not in my wheelhouse. I've never really <laughs> been into any kind of documentary thing and watching two guys ride a motorcycle for 10 hours. Doesn't sound fun. So <laughs> they, do, they do more than ride the motorcycles. Just, just a point of reference if you check it out. <laughs> but uh, what, what, what about like military documentaries? Do you like that kind of stuff? No, I just, the whole documentary thing. I don't know what it is. Um, I, I mean, I, same thing for books. I, yeah, I don't, I don't really read, read, you know, real stuff. I like fantasy. I'm when I watch TV, same thing, unless it's the office. So, I mean, yeah, not too much documentary stuff for me. I gotcha. Well, I've also heard great things about the Ted Lasso show on Apple TV Plaza. Oh yeah. I've not seen it. Have you seen it? That, that show is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Like perfect for the, think about right now how it's the the worst thing ever in the world. Um, This is the opposite of that. It's, it's just heartfelt warming. It's, it's really fun. All the jokes just land Uh, there. They just do a really good job of selling you these characters and uh, it's definitely worth a watch. 
Okay, very cool. Well, I'll put links in show notes to all those shows, so it'll jump you right to the Apple TV app, and you can watch them there. You'll also find links to show notes to Wes's review of the Keychron K2 version 2, links to the Google event and all the information there, and about all the other things we talked about, Apple Watch, iOS 14.2, and all that good stuff. So check out those links in show notes. You can tweet at Wes and myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes there. Just click on our names, and it'll bring you to Twitter, and you'll be able to follow us and tweet at us there. Thank you to everyone who's been giving us awesome ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts. Podcast. We really appreciate that. If you haven't yet, go ahead and go to that Apple Podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and review. It'll really help us climb the ranks for the technology podcast shows there in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider. It's our weekly show on all the HomeKit devices, smart homes, doing projects, and all that kind of stuff. We talked about the SwitchBot, which is an interesting little device. And also, Andrew gives an update on his studio. You can check out that episode coming Monday after this show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.